Praise God. Acts 26, 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet. This is Jesus speaking to Saul. Uh, rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto, unto thee for this purpose, to make, and the, again the word make means to appoint, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. Praise God. And we talked at the end of the last session about the Lord making Paul a, a, uh, a minister and that the word minister means is the Greek word huperates. That's probably not a totally accurate uh, spelling. And that specifically refers to someone who takes orders from his superior and does exactly what he is told to do without any right to initiate action on his own. Uh, a minister, a minister, a minister. I'm going to make you a minister and a witness. You may be seated. The ultimate witness is a martyr. One who is so committed to what they are attesting to that they are willing to lay down their life in order to demonstrate how strongly they believe in the veracity of their experience and beliefs. Thus, witnessing is not a casual conversation with another person, but a surrender of our lives to his mission on earth and the resultant actions that will be produced by such a surrender. When we become witnesses, we will see the fruit of it. In other words, to be a true biblical witness, there is a dying process that takes place. I, I, I said this, I think it was yesterday, uh, that when a soldier goes to war, they must count themselves as already dead or the likelihood is that there's a greater chance that they will be dead. A soldier cannot go into battle trying to save his life. He can't. It's like, this is a poor example, but it's like, uh, it's like a team that's ahead in a game. And the moment they begin to play not to lose rather than going ahead and to play to win, the uh, statistics are huge that they significantly increase their likelihood of losing when their focus is on not losing rather than just winning. And I realize some of you may think it's carnality to talk about sports, uh, but I got good company. Uh, His name is Paul. In fact, the New Testament is full of references to sports, even some that, some references that some people don't acknowledge is there. Paul was not ignorant of sports. He was not ignorant of sports. Uh, and he used sports type references. Uh, in fact, when he said that we should lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us in order to win a race, it was a direct reference to the habit of the Greeks that when they ran in a race, they ran naked. They didn't wear clothes for the sake of not encumbering their ability to run. 
And the idea of them taking their clothes off is an exactly referred to by Paul when he said we should lay aside every weight. That is a specific statement correlating or, comp- or referring to the practice of the Jews in taking off their clothes to aid in their running. That may be an extreme example, but it is an accurate example. So, uh, in fact, in fact, the one thing that we have never accepted is, uh, is that sports originally came about as a substitute for war. There's a game that is really been very popular in the Northeast, Northeastern part of the United States that's played in some areas in Canada and is now becoming much more of a popular varsity sports, both in high school and college, uh, named lacrosse. And it started, it was a game invented by Indians specifically for the purpose to settle disputes without going to war to fight against each other. And the two tribes would get together and they would play lacrosse and the winner would win the battle without bloodshed. And uh, most, most sports we play today, most, not all, most sports we play today have their origin in duplicating or learning to practice certain skills that are needed by warriors. Now, I'm not justifying people becoming fanatics of sports, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I do feel like that we have taken a position that is not really biblically defensible. When we, when I was a kid, most churches just banned all sports. And, uh, in fact, I remember how much we were judged when we had a church softball team. But, uh, I, I'm not, I don't want to stay on that subject, but the point being here that, uh, we are in a contest. Except this is not a sport. It is war. In war there are casualties. I forget which battle it was uh, that Israel fought. And the Bible talks about how greatly they were blessed in that battle because only 30 people died. Well, to the families of those 30 casualties, there wasn't a victory one. Israel won a victory, but 30 families lost fathers, husbands, brothers. And I I would agree that's better than 3,000. The the loss at Ai, if I remember correctly, after they presumed to fight against Ai without talking to God, there were 3,000 casualties. But there are other battles that Israel fought and won. That apparently there were no casualties. Nobody died. Now, just between me and you, okay? I don't know what it is, but 
I, I, I really have a thing about being cut. I don't like being cut. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I really, getting cut gives me the willies. Really, I just kind of get a weird feeling about just the idea of somebody cutting me with a knife. I just, ah, really, ah, man, it's terrible. And, and, and not that I'm saying that's abnormal, but it, it <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, we, we were taught self-defense and, uh, some of the, Things that we were, you know, they try to teach us how to deal with somebody in a knife fight or if they pull a knife on us. Well, just between me and you, the best defense, in my opinion, in a a knife fight is run. (laughs) Run. Or if you're in a knife fight, a knife fight, the best defense is pull out a pistol. (laughs) Okay. All right. You want a knife fight? (laughs) Okay. That's it. I think of your knife, but. Uh, you know, the point I'm making, and I don't own any weapons, so, you know, I'm not a gun nut. But the point I'm making, again, is, you know, when you think about the battles that were fought in the Scripture, swords, <laughs> swords, swords, and you're in close quarters with all these people, you got a shield, and they're swinging swords all over the place, and you have a battle. Where your, your army fights against this other army and defeats that other army and you didn't lose any men? Nobody died? That's pretty miraculous just between me and you. I, that has to be God. The point again in my ramblings is there are casualties in war. Uh, there was a brother that was here last year for Call a war and, uh, and he went home and began, he, he had a, a, a newer church. He hadn't been there, the church hadn't been there very long. He started it and, uh, he, he had a group of people and he went home and started, uh, to do warfare. And, uh, there were some French people and they left and he called me and said, I, I, I really think you need to make sure that people understand. That if they go home and start warfare, there will be some casualties. And he said, I'm not saying at all not to teach what you're teaching. And I certainly believe we're supposed to do spiritual warfare. But people need to be mentally prepared for the fact there will be some casualties. There's going to be casualties. Uh, I've said, I said this last year to Antioch before call to war, and I said it again this time. You know, we, we can't host a meeting like this and preach this, teach this, practice this in this kind of setting. And then think that if you're sitting around here on the fringe and you're not committed and you're not walking covered with his blood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that this can happen here and that you won't end up being a casualty if you're on the sidelines. It's not possible. Does that mean we shouldn't have done this? Of course not. I'm not happy about the fact that people are casualties. But this is greater than me. This is greater than a church. This is greater than any one single individual.
You know, and it's easy to talk about that till there's a face or a name on it. Sometimes that's very painful. But the bottom line is, it's still true. So you can't, you can't refrain from warfare because people you love and care about may end up being casualties. Can't do it. And, and as an active participant in what the Lord's called us to do, he told Paul he was called for the purpose not being a minister, just a minister, but being a witness. That means if it came down to it, and it was gonna, it would cost him his life. So be it. I mean, you know, I guess the reason the apostles didn't have a retirement plan It's because they didn't make it to retirement. And we know according to history, not according to the Bible, but according to history, uh, if we are to believe what is, was written, that 11 of the 12 apostles died violent deaths, and the only one that didn't was the apostle John, and they tried to. According to history, again, whether it's to be believed or not, they tried to execute John by boiling him in oil in Rome, and he wouldn't boil. So the only thing they could do was banish him and confine him to a rocky island in the Mediterranean called Patmos. So the only reason he didn't die violent deaths was God didn't allow it because he wasn't through with him yet. Now, now think about this just a little bit. These were great, awesome men of God who are the foundation in Christ of this church. And not one of them was allowed to die as a, an old man with his family tucked around him as he gently passed from this life in his bed. Not one of them. Not a single one of them. And in the average church, if you get, begin to talk about dying for your faith, it starts making people really nervous because there's just not that many people that have either thought it through or prayed about it and made the commitment, Lord, I'm here, whatever the cost. I'm a part of this, whatever the cost. This is what Paul, the Lord told Paul his destination, in my opinion. From the day he called him. I've called you to be a witness, a, a, a minister. And the kind of minister that you're going to go where I tell you to go, say what I tell you to say. And that's it. And you're going to be a martyr, a witness unto me. You're going to give yourself to me to the point. That whether I let you live or die, you're going to be a testament, testimony to me. Again, I read earlier, uh, Acts chapter five, uh, nine verses 15 and 16, what the Lord said to Ananias concerning Saul. 
The Lord said unto him, but the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a, and I said, Lord, don't you know who this guy is? You want me to go to him? Don't you know what he's been doing in the church? The Lord said, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. <laughs> Whoa, hey, uh, from the first day, I'm going to do great things to you, but it's going to be expensive. Can't you just see the average pastor on Sunday morning preaching to a crowd of people with some visitors there? If you want to be saved, you know, you want to be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, come down front. And the Lord's going to give you the Holy Ghost. And, and he's going to give you a place in him. And you're going to suffer. And you may even die violently for his name's sake. Everybody interested, come forward. I wonder what that, if that's what it means when the scripture says we're admonished to preach the whole counsel of God. Problem is, of course, you and I know it's a little difficult to build a crowd if you preach that stuff. But it's true. It's true. Uh, the, uh, the Vines dictionary definition of the Greek word translated, uh, witness is one who bears witness by his death, literally. It denotes one who can or does aver, give testimony to or, or, or to the, the truthfulness or the veracity of something. One who can or does aver what he has seen or heard or knows. Dictionary.com defines aver as to assert or affirm with confidence to declare in a positive or preemptory manner. And we're called to be witnesses. We were given the Holy Ghost to be witnesses. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.12, And I thank God, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul didn't volunteer. Now, what has been going on the last 10 years or so in Iraq and Afghanistan especially, but of course throughout the world, anywhere any military, U.S. military service person is stationed, is that this is the first time in the history of the United States that we have been involved in armed conflict and every single person who has participated in that conflict did so as a volunteer. Never happened before in the history of the United States. There's been a draft. Uh, there was a draft for World War One. There was a draft for uh, uh, well, there was a draft for the Civil War. There was uh, a semblance of a draft for the Revolutionary War. There was a draft for World War One, World War Two, the Korean War. Uh, there was actually a draft for the Spanish-American War. But not this time. Needless to say, in my lifetime and yours too, uh, there was obviously a draft for Vietnam. 
But Paul did not volunteer. A very unbiblical statement is, I found God. God was not lost. I was. I can't ever say that I found God. I didn't go seeking for him. He came seeking for me. No man can come out of the Father except the Spirit draw him. He calls. Those that respond are chosen. Those that commit become the faithful. This also is a demonstration of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had one ministry to the crowd, and then he had another ministry to the hungry, and then he had a completely different ministry to the disciples. And each of those ministries were intended to call the crowd to find out who was going to be a part of the next level of ministry. So you and I are called. If we are called, then it doesn't have anything to do with our schedule, our physical well-being, our finances, our family problems. If we're called to be involved in his kingdom and his purpose, there is no excuse that's accepted of God for us to not be involved. Go tell them to come. I can't come. I've bought a piece of ground. I need to go see it. I pray they have me excused. I can't come. I've bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go preach. Prove them, I pray thee, have me excuse. Finally, the ultimate excuse, I've married a wife, I cannot come. He didn't say, even say, have me excused. That was all the justification he needed. I got a wife, I can't participate. And the scripture says, the master was wroth. He was angry at the excuses. If you and I are waiting till all of our difficulties and problems in our life and questions are solved so that we can finally get involved, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's not going to get there. The Lord's not even trying to get you there. He's not even trying to get our lives pain-free, problem-free, pressure-free so that we will finally be committed and be involved. He's not even attempting to do it. Because he uses these things as sifters to determine who has a heart that is willing to participate with him and what he's doing. The choice thing cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated. The need for somebody to make a choice can't be overstated. And the Lord always puts us in a situation where there is a choice to be made. Always. There's always going to be a choice. You and I have to choose. 
and the and excuses being made to postpone the choice or to justify not choosing is not acceptable. It's not acceptable to the Lord. I think I've talked about that long enough. Okay. Next verse, Acts twenty six seventeen. Again, remember that 16, 17, 18 are one sentence. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Scholars are divided on the correct interpretation of the Greek word here translated deliver in this verse. Some believe that it should be translate, translated delivered, meaning that Paul was being rescued and will be in the future from both the Jews and the Gentiles. Other scholars believe that it should be translated chosen, meaning that the Lord specifically chose Paul from among the Jews and Gentiles to be appointed and sent out, uh, quote unquote, as a minister and a witness. I personally believe in order to harmonize with the Greek word apostello, which is, is the verb to send forth, which is the root word for apostle, used later in this verse, that the second translation is the one most in harmony uh, with the charge that Jesus is delivering to Paul. Now we know, we know that the Lord had Paul let down over a wall in a basket to spare him from being killed by people. And we know that he was stoned and left for dead and uh, was resurrected from the dead later. We know all of that. But in the, in the context of being chosen, in the context from God choosing him out of these people to be sent back to these people, you know, I don't really, I don't really get where people get the idea that holiness and standards are, are not important. They, they completely ignore the very literal meaning of the word church in the Greek. Because the word Ecclesia, which is translated church, is literally, it means literally the assembly of the called out ones. And we are called out not to stay out. Holiness is not for the purpose of isolation, but insulation. Holiness is not intended for us to isolate ourselves from the world, but to be able to be sent back to the world with the insulation of separation from God. I read something the other day uh, in a reference work I was reading that really kind of shocked me. And I'm going to be in the position one of these days of having to share it in a more incriminating way. The word hagios, which is a Greek word that's translated holy. This uh, Greek scholar was saying 
that the word is not directly connected in context or usage with anything having to do with morality. Had nothing to do with right and wrong. He said the idea of the word, and of course I knew this part before, said the idea of the word is that you are set apart from for the purpose of being set apart unto. And he said the proof that this is the case is that the the practices in the heathen temples which included what we would consider debauchery, including the, the, the use of temple prostitutes, these prostitutes were considered hagios. So participating or utilizing a prostitute in this pagan temple was accepted practice because she was holy. (laughs) Proving, the scholar was saying, that the concept of holy is first and foremost not a moral code, but a commitment. And that All of the results that we would call standards are the fruit of a commitment to a person that we are, we are separated from this and dedicated, consecrated, sanctified unto this or this, in this case, this one. So, and, and there's a further proof of that. Did holiness begin with sin? Did holiness exist before sin occurred? (laughs) Oh, Jesus, thank you very much. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. We want to believe what we want to believe. You know, don't confuse me with scriptural facts. The problem is, if you're thinking I'm saying that any of the stuff we've taught is not scriptural, I'm not saying that at all. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. I believe I can prove a woman shouldn't cut her hair and a man has to cut his. And I, 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 I can prove uh, that a woman should not wear uh, garments that divide her loins. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, because that's, that's what defines a man's garment is a garment that divides the loins. And I'm, I'm talking about visibly div- divides the loins. Uh, excuse me. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but that's not talking about pantyhose unless that's all she's wearing. But if the visible garment divides the loins, that's, that's, she's wearing male apparel because only a male could divide the loins. It's talked about girding up your loins as a man. I believe that. I've got book, I've got, <laughs> I, I, I got a document I'm about to make available that I'm just about, just about finished editing. 
that's uh, over 120 plus pages just on an, al- an analysis of the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 11 on hair. I believe it. I believe with everything in me. But the bottom line is this. The bottom line is that we've made holiness something it's not, which then opens the door for it to be undermined. I'm going to ask the question again. Did holiness not come into existence until sin? Well, the answer is obvious. Of course it didn't. God's always been holy. And if the only way you define holiness is what you're against, what was God against when there wasn't anything but him? (laughs) What was he against? What was the moral code that we call holiness when when there was only God? There wasn't even angels before the fall. He was holy then. So the idea of holiness, the word means set apart from, set apart unto, sanctified, dedicated, committed unto, which is a synonym of the word church, which is the assembly of the called out ones. But the church isn't called out to be isolationists. They're called out to be separated unto him and to become like him so that they can then go back to the world to reach the world for the sake of the world not going to hell. Whoa. What does this have to do with warfare? Everything. 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 I mean, I, I'm so shocked at some of the men that I have great respect for who have taken that verse that a woman should have power on her head because of the angels. It's meaning if a woman doesn't cut her hair, that gives her great power. That's like answering the question, do you believe you have to speak in tongues to be saved? Well, the answer to that question is no. You don't believe you have to speak in tongues to be saved? No. I, be, I believe you have to have the Holy Ghost to be saved. But the only way you know you initially have the Holy Ghost is you speak in tongues. Well, then you're saying you have to speak in tongues to be saved. No, I'm not. I'm never going to say the evidence is the requirement. You're not saved because you speak in tongues or don't speak in tongues. You're saved because you have the Holy Ghost. You're not saved if you don't have the Holy Ghost. The evidence is not what saves you. The lack of the evidence is not what sends you to hell. You're not going to find me. I'm not going to preach that a woman who cuts her hair is going to hell. She's not going to hell because she either cuts or doesn't cut her hair. Or wears pants or not wears pants. It's what it indicates is in here that determines salvation. That's just an outward sign of what's going on in here. 
It is not a biblical defensible position to preach that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. You have to have the Holy Ghost to be saved. That is a biblically defensible position. And the fact that the initial external evidence of the Holy Ghost, and John 3 and 5 says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, now heareth the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh to it, where it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. That Greek word translated wind is P-N-E-U-M-O in the Greek, and it can be translated wind, breath, or spirit, all depending on the context. And the Lord uses this analogy to let us know about uh, 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 the, the, the birth of the Spirit. And he didn't choose feeling the, the wind or seeing the effects of the wind. He chose hearing the sound of the wind. And the Greek word there for, for, for sound is P-H-O-N-E, phone or phone, which is literally in the Greek voice. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. But even with that strong evidence, I'm not going to preach and speak in tongues. It's necessary for salvation. It's the evidence that the indwelling spirit is there which saves you. Well, can somebody have this Holy Ghost without speaking in tongues? I can't find that in the book at all. Do I believe that's the only evidence of the Holy Ghost? It better not be. <laughs> there better be other evidences of the Holy Ghost in your life. And you can't be satisfied with just one. You can't live like the devil and speak in tongues and claim you're saved. But the point here is this. No evidence. No. I, again, I, this is one of those little uncomfortable subjects. It's, it was a Jew saved because they were circumcised? Does that mean anybody that would go out and get circumcised is saved? As a Jew? No. It's what that represented as an act of faith. That was the evidence that they had faith to be saved. Now, what if your child's not circumcised? Well, they're not, they don't have a part in the covenant of the promises. Well, so then you've got to be circumcised to be saved. No, you've got to have the faith that would require you and lead you to demonstrate that faith by circumcision. It's like water baptism. Galatians 3, 27. First minutes are baptized into Christ, they're put on Christ. Are you saying being dunked under the waters that serves salvation? If that's the case, Let's get us a tub, drive down the road, get people to get in the water. We'll just dunk them in there and I'll be saved. You can't separate a person's faith, what's going on in here, from them getting wet. Do I believe a person can be saved without being water baptized? You can't be in the church. And at the church age, I don't believe you can be saved. Now, dispensations before and during the seven-year period after? I don't know about that. But I know today, in this church age, right now, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Can you be saved outside the kingdom of God? Can you be saved outside the body of Christ? For as many as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There's no other way into the body of Christ than water baptism. But it's not getting wet. It's not being dunked in the water that puts you in the body of Christ. It's the fact that you are doing that, submitting to doing that as an act of faith. And that outward sign that you're participating is, is proof of that faith. Well, can a person have faith and not get baptized and be saved? No, because if you have faith, you'll demonstrate that faith. And if you don't demonstrate that faith, you don't have faith. I know it appears as though I'm 10 million miles from my subject. But I don't believe I'm off the subject at all. That's why I'm saying to you. I said it earlier today. If we preach to people that if they come to church and they repent of their sins and they get baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues and they pay their tithes and they give offerings and they're faithful to church and they worship and they live a holy separated life and, and, and they're obedient to the pastor and, and they what all that and we say they're saved. We've lied to them. That's a lie. Because that's a half truth. And isn't a half truth a lie? That's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. And unfortunately, and this is the unfortunate thing, I've ministered on every continent except Australia. And it's just that it isn't a North American thing. This is the way it is, no matter what the culture is, no matter what the, the, uh, the economic status is, whether it's a developed country, an undeveloped country, high-tech country, high literacy rate, low literacy rate, people are people, and it's the same everywhere. And that is people believe that if they just do the good, and good is, obey Acts 2.38, come to church, pay tithes, live holy, obey the preacher, treat people good, live a moral life, they're saved. It's not true. It's not true. All that does is position you to be saved. The question is, what are you going to do with all that? Well, I got family problems and I got financial trouble and I got, I got, I'm sick and, and you know what? I've known people that were paralyzed that rocked the world. They were laid up in a bed. Paralyzed. And laid there. And throughout the day would pray. And they would just pray for whoever God brought on there. And they'd pray for countries, for nations, for missionaries, for churches, for people. And they would lay right there in that bed and rock the world. Brother Barnes said one time, he was in his office, he said, he said, there's some of these fellers. They're running around all over the world preaching all these meetings. He said, I impact the world more sitting right here in this office praying and talking on this telephone than they do in everything they do combined running all over the place. 
Well, if he was 50 and bragging like that, you'd, you'd say he needed to pray. But he was in his late 80s and talking like that. He wasn't talking about him. He was talking about an understanding of the ability to be involved in the supernatural dimension and how absolutely beyond like anything else in existence prayer is as a privilege for us and not our Father which art in heaven just repeating that prayer or now lay me down to sleep or God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food praying, but a true prayer life where faith is involved and I'm involved in the supernatural dimension and I'm praying and affecting nations and affecting individuals and affecting cities. When I read yesterday that Maryland became only the sixth or the seventh state that publicly in a plebiscite vote where the people voted, not a legislative body, to approve same-sex marriage. Overwhelmingly, apparently. I can't tell you what that did to me. And this has nothing to do with homosexuality. This has everything to do with, oh my God. We're living and working among the people that think and have this kind of attitude. You can't have what God's promised here with normal praying when that's the spirit of the people. That doesn't mean we should just back out and send them all to hell. Shame on you. You're bad people. No, no, no. That's the difference is what that does is it's a challenge that says, Hey, I don't know what the latest number is, Brother Hemus, but I heard the other day that only 2% of all people in the UK go to church regularly at all. 2%. 1%. Well, here's rather than saying, Oh, this is impossible. It's, Hey, we can't do this with regular church, and this can't be done with regular praying. There's got to be something beyond, or we're not going to see anything happen here. In case you hadn't figured it, this isn't the Bible Belt. If I remember correctly from that article, it was something like there were 38 or 39 states where the the people have voted on that particular subject. And only six or seven states, whether we're the sixth or the seventh, have approved it. The people approved it. Out of 38 or 39 of them. Well, I'm not packing my stuff and leave Maryland. This is where I'm called. If I'm called here, he's willing to equip me for this. And if he equips me for this, he's willing to empower me. And enable me to do this. Well, don't you want to go somewhere place that's nicer? I feel sorry for you if that's what you want. Because I got a verse that says, where sin abounds. <laughs> Thank God I've been called to live among a people like this because sin abounds here. So I got a promise that grace does much more abound. I want to see some miracles. I want to see some miracles. Well, we can't sit back and sing, you know, 
faith of our Father strong to save or whatever else it is we sing. I like the new songs, but after a while, they all sound exactly the same to me. I don't know about you, but they all do. They all sound exactly the same. They do, honestly. I think the same person wrote them all. And they were kind of really stretched to try to come up with a different idea. And, and they barely changed the tune because they all sound the same to me. But okay, I, I like them. I, you know, I sing them and, and they're really, they're, they're fun to sing because they're more challenging to sing harmony to. And I like to sing harmony. So, so. But we could sit back and sing, God is great and greatly to be praised. God is great in my soul. And just have ourselves a big time and just sit here and just go through the motions and, and keep waiting for this crowd to burst through the door. And rush down front and say, we want to be saved because it's such, this world's so full of sin. <laughs> it's just as much likelihood as Peter Pan and Tinkerbell would come flying through the door <clears throat> as that. Or Alice, bursting out of her office, coming into Wonderland, saying, that's my wife's name in case you didn't know, is Alice. It's, it's not possible. It's not going to happen. What God does is on purpose. The people that participate with God participate on purpose. That's what Paul was saying. God was saying to Paul, this is on purpose. I've called you on purpose. And I've called you for a purpose. And I've called you out of these people to prepare you to go back to these people. I want to use you, he says. I want to use you. <clears throat> the word deliver there, uh, Thayer says it means to take out, to choose out for oneself. Select. One person from among many. That's why I don't personally agree with, like some of these other uh, scholars say, I don't, from a spiritual standpoint, not from a scholastic standpoint, I don't agree that the word there should be translated deliver. Because the word means to take out, to choose out for oneself, select one person from among many. The complete word study dictionary says it means to take out from a number. Select. In the middle voice, it means to select for oneself, to choose. Paul was taken out of. He was chosen. He was selected for a purpose. So are you and I. I believe with all my heart that every person that's being saved today is being saved because this is not the harvest, but they're being saved because God wants them to be a laborer in the coming harvest. Every single individual. This is not the harvest. The Lord is just saving laborers for the harvest that it's our job to train and prepare to get ready to participate in the harvest. Back in the early 1900s, the teens in the 20, 1920s and 30s and whatever, when there were so many lost people and so few preachers, I have to, uh, over the years I've looked at that and it really bothered me that guys would feel led to go to a town and they'd, they'd put up a brush harbor or a tent or 
rent a hall and they'd begin having church and tens and fifties and hundreds and two hundreds, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred people to get the Holy Ghost. And then God would tell them move on and they'd just move on. Even when many times there wasn't even a preacher to leave with them. And I'm thinking to myself, how, how unscriptural is that? But I got a question. If you knew, if you knew that the rapture was going to take place at midnight this Sunday night, you knew it. And you went out to reach as many people as you could. You would try to get every person you could to repent right there on the spot, get them in the water, get them baptized, get them prayed through the Holy Ghost. And you'd say, you'd shake your hand and say, God bless you, and you'd go on to the next person. What about taking care of them? Well, because your goal at that point in time is just to get as many people in a position where they could be saved as possible. You're not going to be taking a lot of time to disciple them. Now, I'm not preaching against discipleship. I'm just simply saying that's proof we're not in a harvest period, that this isn't yet the harvest. Because we're not only praying people through, but we're supposed to be taking time and getting them trained and getting them ready to be laborers in a harvest. Because when the harvest comes, we're going to need to go wherever we can go, every place we can be sent, and pray and, and pray everybody through we can get and get them baptized and go on about our business because we're not going to be able to sit and dwell because it's harvest. In fact, reapers who who go out into a, 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 a field, a standing field of wheat. Now I'm not talking about since the advent of combines, but you've got a, a side, a sickle. Those guys, they, they go out, they take a swath, a swipe through that standing wheat. They don't stop, lay down their sickle, gather together the, the bundles and wrap it up and make a sheaf out of it. No, no, no. That's not what the reaper does. The reaper just progresses through. He just is cutting it down. He's cutting it down. He's the reaper. He's cutting it down. There are other people who follow behind him who gathers the cut down stalks of wheat into bundles and wraps them up. That's all they do. Once it's bundled and wrapped, they leave it laying there. Then there's another team that comes into the field and they take those bundles. If they don't have an animal or a cart or whatever, they put them on their shoulder and their job is to walk from the field back to the threshing floor, back and forth, transporting. It's a team effort. Oh, by the way, the only example I can find in the scripture where one person did all that at the same time, he wasn't doing it to reap a harvest. He was doing it for his personal consumption. Gideon. The Midianites had been coming and stealing the crop at harvest time. And the Jews were 
starving to death. So Midian had reaped himself a couple of bundles of wheat, a couple of bundles of sheaves, and he had taken it over behind the wine press because the grape harvest is at a completely different time of the year of the wheat harvest. And he knew the Midianites were going to be going to the threshing floors to steal the harvest where they expected the harvest to be. So Gideon is over hiding behind the wine press with his couple of bundles of sheaves threshing that so that he could take that wheat home and his wife could make it into bread so that because they were starving. That's where the angel found him who said, Oh, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. No wonder Gideon responded with, excuse the paraphrase, Who, me? Don't you recognize that I'm over here hiding because I'm afraid. And I'm only doing this to try to spare my life. Because we're starving to death. And you're calling me a mighty man of valor over here? Small harvests are reaped, bundled, carried to the threshing floor, threshed, winnowed, sifted for personal consumption. Hallelujah. But in a harvest, the harvest truly is plenteous. But the, the what? What? What did you say? The labors are what? Few. The shortage is not available harvest. He never one time told us to pray for a large harvest. Not one time. There is no place in this book where we are told, where we are instructed to pray for a large harvest. But we are instructed to pray that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. And I realize my approach to you today so far has been a little bit confrontational. Personally, that's not what I would have chosen to do. But I think I can prove it scriptural. How about put on the screen for me, Matthew chapter 9, we'll start with verse 37. Let's find out if it's scriptural. Then saith he unto the disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Verse 38. Pray ye... This is what you're supposed to pray. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now that word send forth is not apostello, which is the verb to send forth. It is the Greek word, if I'm not mistaken, it's either balo or ekbalo. I'm almost positive it's ekbalo. And in almost every other place where that word is found in the Greek New Testament, it is a direct reference to casting out devils forcibly and by authority. And we have been instructed to pray, Father, Lord of the harvest, 
Whatever you've got to do to get people out of their comfort zone and, to, and free them from their excuses and thrust them, eject them. That's the literal meaning of the word ekbalo, eject. Eject them from what? From their comfort zone, from their complacency. Eject them into the harvest. It's a violent thing. And it implies an unwillingness to go. But circumstances happening in such a way that going is really not an option. He didn't tell us to pray. Give us a great harvest, Lord. He told us the harvest is guaranteed. The harvest truly, or in the Greek word there is most assuredly or with total certainty, the harvest truly is plenteous. It's a very large harvest. He says, my problem is I don't have the personnel to reap it. So here's my prayer request. That you would pray that I would do whatever was necessary to create whatever circumstances in the lives of my people that is needed to eject them from their comfort, from their complacency, and force them out in the fields of the harvest. The Lord wouldn't do something like that. Nah, he wouldn't at all. Here's this guy tooling along on the road to Damascus. You know, he's feeling pretty good about himself. Everything's just great. You know, he's the hero. He's the man. He's got all these people. He's got some soldiers with him. And he's got these followers of his that are cheering him on. Go, 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 go. Saul, go do it. You're doing good. You're doing a good work. God's pleased. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, and he's riding along. And then all of a sudden, right out of the clear blue, and in this case, that's a literal statement, right out of the clear blue. There is a light brighter than the noonday sun, and it was around noontime. It wasn't just a light, but it was so forceful. There was so much power in it, he was physically knocked out of the saddle onto the ground. The light was so bright that it blinded him for three days. And he hears this voice speaking to him in the Hebrew tongue. That's the reason it says in another place when it doesn't identify what, what, what tongue they were speaking in, that there were people present who didn't understand what was said. It only sounded like noise to them. Because there were Roman soldiers there who didn't speak Hebrew. And so when, when the Lord spoke to him, to, to Saul, in the Hebrew tongue, they didn't understand it. But this voice thundered to this man that had been physically knocked out of his saddle when he was on the way to do this thing. He had his mind made up. He wasn't on the ground by his choice. He wasn't on the ground by his choice. Now, what had been going on? The church had been praying. The church had been complaining to God about this guy Saul and all the people that were getting killed. And they wanted God to do something about it. 
They just didn't want him to do what he did. They wanted God to fry Saul's hide. They wanted God to punish, torment, kill, slay, draw, and quarter Saul. The They weren't praying for his salvation. They were praying for their deliverance. They never expected God to deliver them from the work of Saul like he did. Never expected it. And they proved it numerous times. There were people that were alive in the church when Saul got saved that never did trust him his entire life. Never did trust him. Never did believe. First of all, because when he finally left the Jews and started preaching to the Gentiles, and he didn't preach everything about being a Christian Jew that they were preaching, they, didn't, they also didn't trust him for that. I mean, he was, he was a compromiser. But you want to know, you you want to ask a question, would God eject a man into his harvest? Well, the guy who wrote over half the New Testament experienced that very thing. That very thing. I'm only using this as a example. Uh, what's that guy's name? Tom... Oh, Cruz, Tom Cruz, who's a famous Scientologist. That's supposed to be a religion. I visited my niece in the hospital. Uh, she was, uh, my sister lives in Southern California, and my, sister was, my niece was having bleeding in the brain. They did a particular surgical procedure that was required. She had to go to the uh, Kaiser Permanente Hospital uh, uh on, that was on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood. And so I visited her in the hospital there. And right across the street from the hospital was the big church of Scientology. The guy's name that found it was Hubbard. And there's a street in Hollywood that borders that building that's named for Hubbard. Well, what if, what if God Suddenly, miraculously, revealed himself to Tom Cruise. And this man became a flaming evangelist. How many people would doubt him? A whole lot. But there'd be a whole lot of people affected by it too. I'm just giving you an example, that kind of extreme example. What if God revealed himself to King James and he left the Miami Heat and gave up basketball? LeBron James. And he said, God's called me to preach. And I'm not playing any more basketball. I'm going to preach right now. God's called me. He's given me the truth. What kind of impact would that have? That's kind of what we're talking about when Saul was dramatically converted. He wasn't seeking for this. Saul wasn't looking for this. He was fighting this. He wasn't looking for this. 
That stuff's not going to happen until the church learns to pray. And I'm not talking the now I lay me down to sleep, hallelujah, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus stuff. I'm talking about pray. Put that verse on the screen again for me, Ephesians six eighteen that we used last night. I used to believe there was only one offensive weapon in the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, until I realized that's not true. There's a second offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit is the rhema of God. The second offensive weapon is persevering prayer, prevailing prayer, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. What would happen? What would happen? What would happen if we prayed and God started converting notable people? It's not going to happen with us just having church. I don't care how good the church is, how good the worship is, how good the preaching is. It's not going to happen with us just having church. Not going to happen. We have to pray. It's not enough, brother, to just pray real hard for a good message or for a word from God. That's not enough. There's got to be prayer. There's got to be prevailing prayer, prayers of supplication, prayers of intercession. There's got to be prayers where God moves in such a way he ejects people into their heart, into the harvest. He ejects laborers out of their complacency, out of their religious uh, comfort zone into the harvest. I didn't always believe this stuff. Before December 1996, my understanding of intercession was something that you had to go around, you had to carry this heavy, heavy burden. And then you, you had to, you had to pray and work yourself up into this fever, intense, groaning feeling and then you had to pray and pray and pray and then you prayed until finally finally that burden lifted and when it was over with you were just wiped out and and you prayed that didn't happen again for a while the problem is that's valid brother billy cole told me that his wife was an intercessor and that's the kind of intercession she did and he said, that's all she wanted to do was intercession. She couldn't bear to rejoice in church knowing the lost were going to hell. So all she wanted to do was just intercede, intercede, intercede. But she never learned. He told me, she, he said, I didn't understand. And I didn't know how to teach her to receive back, to receive refreshing and re-strengthening. 
I didn't know how to teach her that. And I let her pray intercession until she broke her health. He said, I brought her home from the foreign field. And we I, got, I had a doctor look at her. And that doctor said, my God, man, what have you people been doing? He said, I've never seen anyone who's, who was so physically totally exhausted. And Brother Cole told me she never fully recovered from that. Thousands of people got the Holy Ghost. But she never recovered. And he told me that because he had come to preach for us here and he was a young, I was a young preacher, young pastor. And poor guy. I one more questioned him until he had to get on the plane to rescue himself. From the time he got in the car till the time he got out of the car back again at the airport. One more question, Brother Cole. One more question. One more question. This particular trip, I, I, I want to know all about intercessory prayer. And, and I'm, and I'm pumping him and it's like a half hour ride at that time from the airport to my house and, and I'm talking to him and, and I could tell if you had ever been around Brother Cole, you, after a while you begin to learn, you can feel it rising up on him and he was getting a little impatient with me. He said, that's enough. I will show you intercession. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know, you're going to show me getting under this heavy emotional load and working and praying into this thing where you pray and then you, and you, am I going to have to try to call the ambulance to get you out of here? I'm thinking this stuff. We pull up in front of my house. He got out of the car. We walked up the sidewalk into the house. He, we closed the door. He greeted my wife and then said to the two of us, kneel down right here. We were just inside the front door. Kneel down right here. He said, I will show you intercessory prayer. He knelt down in front of us, raised his hands, and at just a moment's time, boom, he was praying intercession. And he prayed. It was powerful. I mean, angels, spirit of God, stuff moving all in that place. He prayed like that about 10 minutes or so. He stopped. He said, he got up and said, what's for dinner? And I'm going, huh? Well, I saw it. I mean, Billy Cole in my house demonstrated intercessory prayer. That's like 1976. It's like 20 years later, and I still haven't accepted that, and I'm not practicing that. And uh, a man of God came through. He said, God has sent me here. To pray the spirit of intercessory prayer on this church. He said, I, I want you to have a five o'clock meeting before the six o'clock church service and tell everybody here that wants to be an intercessor to come to church. Okay. We did that. That was like 50 people showed up at five o'clock for this prayer. And he said, okay now. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand back and just watch. You know, I, I don't, I don't know about all this. He said, now, Brother Wright is going to lay hands on you. And as he walks down the line and lays hands on you, the spirit of intercession is going to come on you. And I'm going, I am? It is? I'm serious as I can be. I'm not exaggerating. I, I am? 
I'm not feeling anything at all. Nothing. And he, and he went on. He said, oh, are you ready now? And I'm thinking, I'm not ready. I don't feel anything here. But, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I mean, we're going to give it a try. Hopefully this works. I started one end of that line. And all I did was put my hand on their head. And the way I remember it, I put my hand on their head, just said in Jesus' name, and went the next. And every one of them, boom, boom, boom. I mean, it happened just like it happened here last night. The night before, just boom. Intercessory prayer just hit them. It just came on them. I'd never seen that before except Brother Cole. But that was Billy Cole. That's not for anybody else. That's Billy Cole. And this was happening. The people who were part of this church was over in the old sanctuary. The one that the snow took care of. Jesus and the snow took care of it. And when all the smoke had cleared, I went back and studied the scriptures some more. And I got to praying about that. I realized, oh, wait a minute. If the Lord wants me to have righteousness, peace, and joy, and yet I'm supposed to participate with him in spiritual warfare, how is it possible that I'm supposed to go around with this heavy feeling on my chest all the time so I can be an intercessor? It's not my burden. It's not my heaviness. It's not my prayer. I'm just the vessel. And if I can pray in tongues whenever I need to, isn't it possible that the Lord can use me in intercession whenever he needs to? Well, he can. Well, he doesn't use me that way because you don't trust him. But he can, he will if you let him. The problem is, I, I spent, I spent 10 years after having received the baptismal Holy Ghost speaking in tongues once, twice a year, and I hated it. It was excruciating. Because I had to go through all that Pentecostal stuff to get there. And I only did it because I believed I had to speak in tongues to make sure I still had to go to the Holy Ghost so I was saved. But you had to go through the, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Finally the tongues would come and then, and I don't know how they got started, but they did. And then that would go on a while and then I'd be afraid they'd never stop. And then what, and it was all over with. I wasn't refreshed. I was relieved. Thank God that's done. I'm still saved. Hopefully I don't have to do that again anytime soon. Is it, is there a problem with me being honest? I'm telling you right now, that's how I felt about it. And I and I leave the academy and I go to Pensacola, Florida, and I go to this little home mission church out near the Naval Air Station and uh for flight training, and the pastor there, and I, I've been raised in the Navy, so I understood you go to a new church, whatever that pastor teaches, that's what you practice while you're there, and you cooperate and you submit and you practice that. So I went there and this pastor preached that you needed to speak in tongues every day. And I was doing this two times a year and not liking it.
And so I, I'm single, and of course, single people have time. Married people, I mean, that's what Paul said. When you get married, you can't just please yourself. You can't just please God. You got to please somebody else. And so I was single, so I had time. So I decided, okay, he, the man says I got to pray in tongues every day. I'm going to have to get serious about this. So I started going to the church before work, and I'd go over to the chapel. This one? Okay. All right. So I started going to the church and praying. And, uh, you know, that first day I did that thing, I'd go through, I pressed through until I went through the Jesus, 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 and the hallelujah, hallelujahs, and, and, and that took a couple, a couple, that takes, oh, it always took a couple of hours to work through all of that. And finally, my tongue would get tied up, and I, I, at first I'd think it was just, I was so tired I couldn't say talk plain, and, but then I'd let that go, and next thing you know, it'd be going 90 miles an hour, and I'd speaking in tongues, and phew, it, it happened that first day, and I think, well, I got one day down here, okay? And I went back the next day to do that, and then it started getting easier and easier and easier. I began to learn that speaking in tongues is not an emotional experience, it is a spiritual experience. And that I could simply yield to it. Holy Ghost is always in me. Whether I'm feeling it or not. He's always there. And I could yield to him. And I learned I could yield to it. Well I knew that. I'd have been practicing that for, for years. In fact I was called by some other apostolic preachers. I was called a tongue talker. I'm thinking aren't we all tongue talkers? But apparently not to this degree. Tongue talker. Well, after I had that experience of praying for those people and happened like that, I'm thinking to myself, oh, wait a minute here. Intercession is intercession. It's not me. It's not my emotions. It's not my prayer. If I can yield to tongues, I can yield to intercession. I saw it happen. I experienced it myself. And I can do that. And the beautiful thing about that is there's no heaviness before it comes and you yield to it and all that emotion's there and all of that, all that spirit is there and all of that's there. And then when it lifts, you don't feel bad again. Why? Because it's Jesus, not you. It's His burden. It's His prayer. You're just a conduit. Why is that important? Because we've got to do so much more intercessory praying than we do it. And you can't live on a day-to-day basis if all of that's coming from you. Can't be done. 
come up with all the programs and plans you can come up with, come up with all the methods and all the ideas you want to, and all of that may be God and all may be good. But if it's not undergirded by intercessory prayer that defeats principalities and powers that rulers of darkness, world, the wicked spirits in the heavenlies, if you, if it doesn't, it's not undergirded by all that, there's not going to be any fruit. It's not going to be any fruit. Oh, you can pray a few people through here and there. You really can. There are, just like the demoniac at Gadara had approximately 6,000 demons in him, and even though he was possessed with a legion of demons, he was able to, against the will of those demons, come and fall at the feet of Jesus. There are some people hungry enough, they can get saved, no matter how bound the situation is. But not many. Not many. Well, I don't want to be a devil chaser. I'm not a devil chaser. I'm go looking for devils. I don't want to feel devils when they're around. If the Lord wants me to know something, He shows me. I want to know what He wants me to know. But there's so much teaching from Jesus Himself on this. And I'm saying again, he specifically spoke to Paul. Now, I am not delaying, I am not procrastinating. But the Lord willing, I will start with Acts 26 and 18 in the morning. Because I want you to see the specific steps that God spoke Paul or Saul to do so people could be saved. And I'm just going to, let me just mention it to you just for a moment. Let me whet your appetite. He says to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power, and the Greek word there is authority, of Satan unto God. That, for this purpose, for this cause, to this end, they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified of faith. They're not even saved. It's not even talking about their salvation till the last two phrases. Everything that Paul was told to do or Saul was told to do before those last two phrases was preparation to enable them to get Saved. It was what the church led by Paul was supposed to do so that people could get saved. And these were instructions from Jesus. Can I say this is a word from God to every leader in this building? Well, I I need a word from God. You just got one. From the words, the mouth of Jesus himself. This is a word from God. This is a plan from God. And any plan and effort that doesn't include these elements as a regular part of it is doomed to fail. It's doomed to fail. 
You can't enter into a strong man's house and spoil and spoil his goods unless you first bind the strong man. Now, <sighs> I don't want to get all complicated here, but that's not accomplished with a single prayer meeting. You can, when it's God's timing and that anointing comes and that authority comes on you and you speak against that principality, that's going to work. But there's follow-up prayer that takes place. Not only that, again, the demonic realm is made up of finite beings. While they are of a spiritual substance and not an earthly substance, they are finite. They are not infinite spirits. They're each in, each one individually a personality. Just like the angels of God are because they once were angels of God. So much so that the scripture actually refers to them as sons of God when they were in their angelic place. And because they're individuals, not one big collective dark mass, but they're individuals. If you've got a, if you've got a captain of a company of troops over here, and he's under attack, and you wipe, and you, you defeat him and take all of his soldiers captive, unless he was out there, Fighting this war by himself. (laughs) There are other companies deployed around with captains or principalities that are going to attempt a rescue. November 1971, the Lord gave us dominion over the prince of Annapolis. And for a couple of years, it was awesome. But all of a sudden, it got worse than it ever been. I didn't know what, I didn't know what was going on. The Lord said, the prince of Anne County has come against you. Okay. All right. So we prayed fast and the Lord gave us dominion over the prince of Anne County. And for a couple of years, it was amazing. It was awesome. And then the Lord says, and then it got really bad again. Oh, oh God, what's going on? Well, oh yeah. So we fought and fought and fought. Then and finally, the Lord said, I've given you dominion over the Prince of Maryland for this church. And it was just beyond comprehension what happened for a while. But it didn't stop there. And I'll be honest with you. We're 30 minutes without a traffic backup, I can leave this parking lot and be downtown D.C. in 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Plus, there's the spiritual connection because this used to be the U.S. Capitol. After Philadelphia, before Washington. There's a spiritual connection here. Well, I'm going to tell you something right now. 
We, we've been fighting the Prince of Maryland. I mean, Prince of the United States. Now, there are principalities over regions that are not governmental regions. I believe there's a prince of the Northeast. I believe there's a prince of the East Coast. I believe there's a prince of the Eastern United States. But none of those, there's no government that those principalities are working with. So... Here we are. And, 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 and can I be really uh, just brutally honest here? You know why? I'm so very interested. One of the reasons in having a warfare conference. I mean, last year we were packed out. It, it was essentially full. Even in the daytime, it was a great crowd. We had 600-plus people here at night, I think. It was really great. Uh I felt to go a little different direction this year, and I'm happy with it. But one of the reasons I felt to do it, <laughs> getting tired of getting beat up. One of the people involved. I won't even have to focus some other places. I don't mean that in a bad way. Take it however you want to take it. But, <laughs> you know. There needs to be a whole lot of churches getting in his face. It's a whole lot more difficult to hit a bunch of targets than it is one or two or ten. And the more people that are praying and more churches that are warring, he's got limited forces. He doesn't have an infinite number of forces. He's got limited forces. The more that's fighting, the less he's got to resist with. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wind down with this. Uh, I, my brain, my brain, okay. That human part listens to this stomach stuff coming out of my mind, my mouth, and it's going. That really sounds weird. I mean, I got a bachelor of science degree in engineering with a major in applied engineering mathematics to this pea brain of mine, two plus two equals four. You don't understand. <laughs> Nothing about me and my mind works comfortably in the realm this realm I can't see, feel, touch. So when I stand here telling you this stuff, as the Holy Ghost gives it to me, my heart, my spirit knows it's book, it's truth, it's right. But this old mind says, that's weird. That is strange stuff. But the problem is, for my brain, my brain can't deny the fact that not only is it in the book, but I've seen it work too many times for it not to be true. I've seen it work. 
I can't deny it. That was the same exact position I was in at the Naval Academy. When I started there in that first six months, we sat around talking about God. And I, all I knew was what I'd been taught in Sunday school. And I thought I believed that till they absolutely, absolutely ripped it to shreds and I couldn't defend myself. And, and because of the, the intense peer pressure, when you're living with people 24 seven, if you don't fit in, you can't imagine how lonely it can feel. There was no place to escape to. It would have been so, my life would have been so much easier from a natural perspective. If I could have just dismissed all, I, I, I didn't even know what was truth anymore. All that stuff I'd been taught, I couldn't prove it. And, I, and my mind was full of questions with no answers. And it would have been so easy on me in the short run. If I could have just dismissed God and all that stuff and just gone where they went and did what they did and fit in. But I had a problem. I had had some experiences with God that I had no doubt in my mind were real. And it wasn't even a question of of walking away from God. I couldn't walk away from what I knew was true. Because I wouldn't even have been, I wouldn't even been fair to my own self. And it was the fact that I knew what I had experienced was real. That it was real. It wasn't emotion. It wasn't hype. It wasn't that I'm talking about at a 12, as a 12 year old boy. I'm talking about dreams I had as a six year old. I'm talking about the experience I had in the first prayer of intercession I ever prayed at five years of age in a church service when the Spirit of God came on me and I didn't know anything about what was going on, but I was praying for the salvation of my dad. I couldn't deny that. That's as much a part of me. It's my birthday is. Or the names of my parents. And the dreams I had. That were not the hallucinations of a five-year-old kid, six-year-old kid. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that experience, that's as vivid to me today. I, I, I could play the video of it. My mind standing here, it was that real to me. And other things that had happened to me in my life up to that point... Something that doesn't seem as any more dramatic than sitting in my house just a few months before I went to the Naval Academy. And two preachers who were preaching for the church that we were attending at the time, they were staying in our house because back then you didn't, ministers weren't put in a hotel. They stayed in, in somebody's home. And the preacher didn't have a house that could do that. My dad, even though he was a sinner, he loved preachers. And, and, he, and he gave my wife, my mother permission to let these two preachers stay in, a, a, in our house. We had the room. And just to sit there while this man of God, unlike anybody I'd ever known in my life, walked through the house and had intimate fellowship with Jesus and you could feel it and you knew it was true. I couldn't deny that. There was no way to walk away from that. I couldn't walk away from that. So there was nothing left to do but search for truth. 
because I couldn't walk away from God. And I couldn't continue to believe in God without knowing what truth was. So while I stand here today, and I talk to you about all this stuff, and my brain goes, this is weird. My soul says, shut up. Until you're ready to, to prove all that stuff is not true, that's happened, that we, and you've seen and you know, you just be quiet. Because it is. A man prayed the other night on this platform, Monday night. I can't even begin and don't have the liberty to tell you how dire his straits were. Completely, unjustly cut off from access to his family, his children. And unjustly he wasn't going to be able to even see his kids till December of 2013. He was not allowed to talk to them. He wasn't allowed to email them, send them cards or letters. No communication. The earliest he was going to be able to do was see them in 2013. And he lays down on this platform. The Spirit of God comes on him and works through him and comes against that situation And the next day at 11.30, the whole thing changes. And that afternoon, he could call his kids. And he could talk to his kids three times a week. And he's going to be able to be with them for Christmas. And even nobody that was connected to him as a family member or friend were even allowed to communicate with his kids. And all of that's been changed. And his parents can talk to them anytime. And you say, well, that was no big deal. No, I've been involved with this. Brother, you've been very involved with him in that. You don't understand how absolutely miraculous that was. There was nothing he could do to change that. And then all we want to do is have church and feel good and go home. Eat a sandwich and fellowship and go to bed and think, woo, wasn't this good tonight? When we have been given the ability to alter destinies by coming, by moving and dealing in the supernatural using God's spirit, God's power, God's name, God's authority and letting him work through us. Yes, sir. Okay. Praise God. Hey, God wants to do it. Only eternity is going to reveal what God did for people in this room last night. Well, tonight, tomorrow night, we've just begun. Let's stand and raise our hands and thank Him. Could we do that? Let's give Him thanks and praise. Come on. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy.
Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God bless you. I'll see you at 7 o'clock next.